0: Turning in our Bibles to the book of Exodus and we turn our attention to the text, here's where we're moving into some, really some pretty large chunks of scripture. And there's a part of me, I just, I want to just read all of it, like plagues two through six, right? Just just lay it out there, let's let's read it all. Um, Same thing with like next week, plagues seven through nine, let's just read it all because it's, it's the infallible and it's the inerrant word of God. And we need to understand that reading the text, even like we're going through this text or Leviticus or the Psalms or wherever we're at, reading the text is the most important and powerful thing that we do every week. It's it's literally, it's God's word to us. and No doubt, we are going to read God's word to us this morning just not all 1,300 plus words uh, that flow out of plagues two through six. I was tempted to, I had them in my notes, I even have them on the slides, but the more I began to look at it, the more I began to see, It's like, okay, we're gonna read about 500 words, not 1,300 words, and then we're gonna summarize the rest of plagues two through six. But I strongly encourage you to, to read them on your own if you have not done so already, uh, read ahead for next week. But for today, let's, let's read the account of the frogs, and I love the account of the frogs, and then we'll summarize the rest. So Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Now I have no clue why he didn't say today, like in this moment, but Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, in the fields. And they gathered them together in the heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, He hardened his heart, it would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Now this plague will be followed by several other plagues. The ones we're looking at today are the plague of the gnats and the flies and the livestock dying, and you got the boils. And in each one, Moses and Aaron say and do exactly what the Lord would have them to say and do. And in each one, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened, and he refuses to listen to the Lord. But do you remember why God brought about these plagues? We've talked about it in previous weeks. It's a twofold reason. The first being reiterated in chapter 8, verse 22. And if you have your Bibles open, follow along. You can kind of just look straight ahead. Chapter 8, verse 22. He says, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. He's telling him, I'm doing this, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, so that everyone will know that he is, is the sovereign God of all creation. Not not Pharaoh, not the, not the little G gods of, of Egypt, but the Lord. He is the sovereign one. And the second reason being God's means of redeeming his people. He says, let my people go that they may serve me. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is redeeming his people from Pharaoh, from from what should be seen as a, as a type of Prince of Darkness here. And when I say a type of prince of darkness, Pharaoh, Pharaoh is a type of satanic type of figure here. Not, he's kind of representing the, the darkness. So he's removing them from Pharaoh, no longer gonna serve Pharaoh, but who? The Lord. You begin to do the parallelism here and you begin to see that this is a picture of the gospel. For every Christian has been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A redemption that when we are redeemed from that sinful bondage, when we are redeemed from that darkness, what does that bring about or what should that bring about in the life of every believer? a desire to serve, a desire to worship our Redeemer. That's the gospel. And what we looked at two weeks ago was how there's a pattern on display through these plagues. It varies a little bit here and there as we're going to see, but there's an overall pattern that is starting with the obedience of Moses and Aaron to to what the Lord has told them to do. The Lord tells them what to do and they do it. And then we see that followed by another pattern of seeing God's sovereignty over Egypt's little g gods when he brings the plagues. And we also see then that Pharaoh's magicians, his sorcerers, begin to try to imitate and do so on some of the plagues that we will see and others they will not. And then lastly, we see the pattern of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And what we wanna do today is continue to look at how this pattern plays out in plagues two through six and then look at some other important kind of things that we find that add to the equation as well. But kind of going back with the same outline as what we looked at two weeks ago, the obedience of Moses and Aaron. Now we've already seen in previous weeks all, all the insecurities that Moses had, right? how he pleaded with God to send someone else. Please send someone else, God. I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I'm not eloquent with words. He's got all kinds of excuses. But now he and Aaron have done just as the Lord commanded. And they continue to do just as the Lord commanded. So the question that I have is why such boldness? Like Why such boldness now? Why Why such obedience now? Because it seems that they have finally seemed to understand that they are men under the authority of the King, the true and eternal and everlasting King. You know what? It's amazing what an understanding of authority will do to one's boldness, right? Like if if I tell you to go and to do something, it's like, eh, okay. But now if a, a boss or a president or a king is to tell you to do something it's like oh okay I'm I'm I'm, I'm there's some real leverage here and, and then if it's God who is saying do this and you understand him to be who he is we can sense the the sense of authority so chapter 8 verse 1 then the Lord said to Moses go in to Pharaoh and say to him thus says the Lord those are powerful words we can't overlook those words. Those are powerful words. This isn't Moses standing there and saying, um, Pharaoh, I think it'd be a really good idea for you to let the people of Israel go. That's, that's not what we see taking place. Moses isn't coming up there and saying, hey, I would really like this to, to happen. No, it's thus says the Lord, let my people go. There's authority there. Not in Moses, but in the word of the Lord. And when one believes that, confidence follows. Now, as a pastor, there are moments where I call them the big gulp moments. Kind of when you're standing there and you're reading the text and you kind of go through in preparation. You're like... Oh boy, Um, here we go. Like, you know you're about to dive into something difficult um, because let's be honest, there's some difficult stuff in the Bible, right? There's things in here It's like, oh! And like, we've got to deal with it and we've got to deal with these issues like head on. And we we know that when we speak, you're going to have the potential to offend because the Bible can be offensive to those who are unbelieving. It can be confusing even to the believing, even when we've done this with abundant, abundant grace. But there is such confidence and there is such comfort found in knowing and believing that this is God's word to us. Like this is, this is God's word to us. And it's fearing God over man. It's trusting God over man. It's loving God more than we love man. And then because we love God more than man, we actually love man enough to say, thus says the Lord. It's our love for God that allows us to be able to love our fellow man even more than we can ever begin to imagine. Now, when the Lord tells Moses in verse 5, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff. What does Aaron do? He stretches out his hand with his staff, right? Why? Because God said so. Now, did Aaron receive this word directly from the Lord? No, who gave him the word? Moses did. But who gave Moses the word? The Lord. Now, are we hearing the Lord tell us directly, uh, without outside of Scripture? Hey, do this. No, no. We're having the Word of God before us. Moses has written this book down, and we are thus and then saying, "Thus says the Lord." We're doing it because God said so. That's the only reason needed. I remember my dad saying, "Hey, Jeremy, go mow the yard." How I many of you have your parents remember your parents saying that? Hey, go out and mow the yard or do whatever chore that they'd have you to do. And what's the proper response with that? Yes, sir. And then by what? Going doing it, right? But now what is the, the, the response that we have all been prone to respond with over time? Not only to parents, but to God. Well, why? I don't want to. Not now. What about later? I'll push that off until later. And we come up with all kinds of excuses, yet, when we respond that way, and again, we all have, we all will, what are we doing? We're not honoring the, the one who is worthy of all honor and obedience. We're not displaying a desire to serve and honor our Heavenly Father, but ourselves. That's why obedience is so important to a right right relationship with God. And we'll talk about that more in just a bit. But now to pattern number two, God's sovereignty over Egypt's gods. And what we have within plagues two through six with the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the livestock dying and the boils all oh, kind of gross in many ways, is a direct attack on, from God on the little g gods of Egypt, particularly the land gods of Egypt. Because remember how the Egyptians had, had gods for what seemed like everything, but primarily surrounding their sources of life. And what would have been their sources of life? Like the Nile River, right? Everything built along the Nile River because it was a source of life. And then you had land. That's where you're going to have the crops. The Nile would overflow and flood and provide the the moisture and the water necessary to grow the crops. And then you have the sky. And all of these areas are, are sources of life, which tells us that the plagues weren't just to get the attention of Pharaoh, if God wanted just to get the attention of Pharaoh, all he had to do was harden Pharaoh, soften Pharaoh's heart. Now, the purpose of the plagues was to show God as sovereign that he is the Lord. And in so doing, he's judging and mocking the false gods of, of Egypt. So quick overview of two of the plagues that we see here. Frogs and livestock. And I know this isn't a laughing matter here, but I can't help but find the humor here when, when I think about God's sense of humor with the frogs, right? Because you got frogs everywhere, everywhere. And there's nothing like really scary about a frog, is there? Like there's the squirming, they can make you jump. If you're out going for a walk at night and they kind of come hopping across the, the sidewalk, it can, make you, it can make you, even a grown man kind of jump at, at moments, but there's nothing scary about a, a, a frog. They're just, yeah, they're frogs. But imagine them being absolutely everywhere. Like literally everywhere. Not just outside, but inside. Like you sit down for breakfast in the morning and you've got frogs in your cereal bowl, right? And then you've got frogs next to you and in the cabinets and in the dishwasher. and Everywhere there are frogs frogs. That's not even what I find most comical. See, the Egyptians had a goddess named Hecate. If you type it in, not now, but if you type it in Google, like H-E-Q-E-T, I know some of you are like, oh, I'm going to go look this up. Like Later, look it up. She's got like a head, she's pictured as a head of a frog and sometimes even a body of a frog frogs. She's the goddess of fertility um, and kind of a fertility god is the, god the, the goddess of the frog population and helps the women with childbirth. Like what a combination you got there. But anyway, like woo-hoo, we're going to have a goddess with a frog on her head. And you can imagine like when you go out to a pond or a lake or wherever and you hear frogs, what do you know that's there? There's life there right? There's life there. And so that's kind of where that comes from. But basically she's a goddess of fertility. And here's where I laugh because frogs were so sacred in Egypt, the Egyptians, they wouldn't kill them. They were scared to kill the frogs because it's like, oh, it's a little goddess hopping around here, right? <laughs> so all these frogs everywhere, and they're scared to kill them. Now, back in Kentucky, we're going frog digging, and we're packing our freezers full of frog legs right here. Right? We're having a feast. I'm thinking, all right, this is manna from heaven that <laughs> the Lord has given us, but not for the Egyptians. They, they have to be careful when they're walking around. Like they're tiptoeing because they're like, I don't want to crush like goddess it! <laughs> like they don't want to, to disturb their little G-gods. That's what I find comical, picturing that in my mind. But what does God do? He kills them all. He kills them all. And the land stank because of them. You notice the text says the land stank because of them. Now flash back with me a moment to chapter 5. Do you remember when the people of Israel were complaining that Moses to Moses at the end of chapter five or more complaining about Moses at the end of chapter five? They were mad at Moses because Pharaoh had taken away all of their straw in order to make bricks. They were mad. You look at chapter five, verse 21. They said, the Lord look on you. They're saying this to Moses. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. But now, with all of these dead frogs everywhere, who stinks? Who stinks? Egypt and the little g-gods of Egypt. And I love this. I love this because it not only shows his sovereignty, but the patience and the grace of our great God. He shows the steadfast love of God for his people. It's a helpful reminder to me that even when I don't see the big picture, and in chapter 5, they're not seeing the big picture, right? Even when I'm struggling to understand, you have those moments where you're just like, God, I don't understand. I'm reading a text like this, and I am saying, God is still God, and I need to rest in that. When I don't have all the answers, I don't have it figured out, I'm reminded, rest in the one who does. Our obedience isn't to be determined by our circumstances or our understanding, but in the faithfulness of our great God. Now quickly, let's think about the livestock, which is another big one. Because many of Egypt's gods were depicted as livestock. They were depicted as sacred cows, if you will. It's kind of where we get that saying from. And, and don't get me wrong. I love a good steak as the ne- good as the next guy. A good smoked brisket, yes, it can bring tears to this man's eyes right here. Right, But I eat them. I don't worship them. I eat them and I enjoy eating them. But they worship them. Likely where the idea of the golden calf comes from later in Exodus. But what happens to Egypt's livestock? It dies at the hand of God as well. God's showing his sovereignty over Egypt's little g-gods over and over and over. But now on to pattern number three. Pharaoh's sorcerers and magicians imitate God's miracles. And we saw two weeks ago how they imitated or duplicated the Nile turning into blood. They couldn't reverse it. They can only imitate it. Why? Because that's the extent of Satan's power. He's the ultimate deceiver. He cannot save. And here we see the duplication take place again with the frogs, which again makes no sense. Like, yeah, sure. Let's just add more frogs to the equation. Let's just make matters worse for ourselves. Again, there's a little bit of, comedic there. But then when we come to the gnats, the gnats are what follows the frogs, then magicians again attempted to duplicate the miracle, but this time they can't. Now why can't they? Because that's a big question. Why can't they? Well, the text doesn't tell us. We can only assume And we want to be very careful in doing that. And even when we do assume, we want to do so based upon biblical precedent, not based on personal opinion. We never want to say, well, I think this means this. We want to say, what does the whole Bible say on a particular topic? And then bring that into the equation. And biblical precedent tells us that Satan's power extends only as far as God allows it to extend. He's nothing more than a dog on a leash tethered to the authority of our sovereign God. He can do nothing unless God permits it. Think about Job for a moment. If you've never read the story of Job, I would encourage you to do so. What does Satan have to get before he can harm Job? Even if you read the first couple chapters, what does Satan have to get before he can harm Job? He has to get permission from God. Satan comes to God and he says, hey, Job, your your servant, your faithful servant, yeah, he he only worships you because he's rich. That's the only reason he he does this. If I take away his camels and his donkeys and his servants and his stuff, he's going to curse you. If I take all this away, he'll curse you. And what does God do? He gives Satan permission. But then he puts limitations on what Satan can do. He's saying, don't touch his body. You can do all the other stuff that you're talking about. You don't touch him. So Satan kills the the, the camels and the donkeys and the servants. and, And what does Job do? He falls on his face before God and he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away which is not the response that Satan was looking for. Not the one that he was expecting. So what does he do then? He asks for permission to go after Job's body. And he gets it. God gives him permission. But even then, God says, you can't kill him. You can harm him, but you can't kill him. And that's what Satan does. He goes as far as his leash will allow. You know that fierce dog, vicious dog? It's on, you're on a walk, maybe it's chained up to a post. It comes running, chaining, running after as hard as it can. And then all of a sudden it reaches the end of its chain. And it get, what happens? It gets yanked back. It can only go so far. So yes, Satan brings harm. Can even bring harm to believers like we see with Job. But not without God's permission And as difficult as that is for us to grasp, and believe me, that is difficult and emotionally difficult to grasp. That is an important place for Christians to be able to rest. Because then we look to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we have looked at many a time before, which tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Which is only true, this is only true if God is sovereign over everything. And with that in mind, who are the plagues working for the good of? The children of God. They're working for the good of the children of God, God's people. But now, for the one who doesn't love God, what do we see from Pharaoh? the fourth pattern the continued hardening of pharaoh's heart and i'll admit there is a lot here too that is also difficult we've already seen back in chapter four where the lord speaking of pharaoh says but i will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go god's saying he will do this so god is doing the hardening but there's a natural uncomfortableness that comes with this isn't there People will read this and we're like, okay, there's got to be another explanation here. Well, What this actually means is, well, actually God, is, God is, is hardens Pharaoh's heart because, well, I think it's because he knows Pharaoh will harden his own heart. Heard that kind of given many different times. It's trying to rationalize God's sovereignty and human responsibility in a way that feels good to somebody, makes them feel comfortable. But what does that do? When we try to rationalize it in that way, what does it do? It gives more weight to human responsibility and diminishes God's sovereignty. And if we're going to be faithful to the text, we can't do that. Even if it makes us feel uncomfortable, we can't do that. No, if we're going to remain faithful to the text, when we read the Lord saying, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go, we read it, understand, that's exactly what it means. Now, what we don't have to understand is all the whys that come with it. Just, just like with allowing suffering to come upon Job. Like couldn't it happen a different way? couldn't it have been this or couldn't it have been that. It could have been a lot of things. It doesn't matter what could, it matters what the will of God is. And that's what we need to look towards. It isn't because God can't stop it. It doesn't mean that God can't change it, but because God has a purpose for it. Whatever season of life that you find yourself in right now, it is for the purpose of God to work in your life for his purposes. But now let's look, close, let's look closer at today's text. Looking at Pharaoh's response to each one here, okay? Verse 15, He, that's Pharaoh, hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So who's doing the hardening here? Pharaoh is. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But why? Because he wants to. Pharaoh wants to harden his own heart and because God said he would harden Pharaoh's heart. It's both and, which means Pharaoh is held responsible for the hardening of his own heart. He's not doing anything he doesn't desire to do. And at the same time, God is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. Now, does anybody else in the room have difficulty comprehending that? Join the club, right? This is difficult stuff. But let's be clear. They're both in the text, which means they're both true. We can't pit one against the other. So let's continue. After the gnats, verse 19. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now after the flies, verse 32, but Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart hardened, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. And you get the livestock dying, verse seven, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. And finally the boils, verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So we have the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. We have Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And we're told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So, what is clear here? Well, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's clear. And that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That is clear. Which means what? Pharaoh's heart was hardened against the Lord. Wouldn't listen, all of that's true. Every bit of that is true, which means what for us? Which means what? Don't harden your heart against the Lord, church. Do not harden your heart towards the Lord. Feel as though you, your heart is growing hardened. Feel that you're becoming more apathetic to the things of the Lord, not wanting to press into his word, not wanting to spend time in his prayer. Don't do that. Press into him even more. Pray for faithfulness. Pray for him to soften your heart. Spend time in his word. Walk in obedience to him. Even when you're confused and not understanding, walk in obedience as our faithful obedience is evidence of a softened heart, a believing heart. Now, two additional things we see from the text before we close today. Starting with a divine distinction. See, plagues one through three are what, are what we could call equal opportunity plagues. The water turning to blood, the frogs and the gnats are experienced by everyone. Everyone, both the Egyptians and the Israelites. No one was left unaffected by this. But with the flies, the livestock dying and the boils, only the Egyptians are the one left suffering. Why? Because of a divine distinction. Look at the flies in verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Now why? Why does he do that? Why does he make the distinction here? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. He's sovereign over all of his creation. He creates flies to exist and tells them how far they can go. You can go this far, but no further. Clearly, he does not let them be a barrier in coming to my house because they will, during the summer, flood my grill and flood all around me. There's no barrier set up there. But here, he says, you can go here, but you cannot go to here. Can you imagine a wall of flies just stopped? That's as far as they can possibly go. That's it. That's where they stop. Now the livestock, chapter nine, verse six, "All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of, of Israel died." And boils, verse 11. "For the boils came up upon the magicians and upon the Egyptians." So again, in the same text, we have God-levying judgment exclusively against the Egyptians. While protecting his children. And then we have judgment being experienced by all without distinction. So, plagues one through three, all without distinction. Plagues four through six that we are looking at today, then we see them, that it's only coming upon the Egyptians. So, how are we to think about this as Christians and apply this to our everyday life? Well, think about it this way Do both Christians and non Christians experience suffering on this earth? Yes. There's no discrimination with a hurricane or a tornado or cancer or the list could go on. But for we who are in Christ, resting in Christ, treasuring Christ, finding our joy in Christ, we, like Job, have the ability to respond differently than those who have no hope. How? Because we understand that this isn't it. This world is not it we understand that our, our prayers for healing, our prayers for suffering to end, those prayers that bring weeping tears, like, Lord, please let this season end. For we who are in Christ, they will be answered with a yes. 100% they will be answered with a yes. Maybe not now. Though so there's nothing wrong with praying to that end. We want to pray to that end, but someday soon, soon in the realm of eternity, we will be with Christ and our suffering will be no more, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering and answer to our prayers. The suffering of this earth, only temporary for we who are in Christ. But it doesn't mean that we will not stand before God in judgment. We will. Everyone will. Every last person on the planet will stand before God in judgment. As Romans 14, 12 tells us, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. But when we give an account, again, that is for we who are in Christ, when we give an account, our boasting will be exclusively in the finished work of Christ. Nothing that we have done. And what will God do? his judgment will pass over us and we will be welcomed home. Glorified bodies, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering. But not so for those who never believe. Divine distinction identified by the blood of Christ. And now one last thing before we want to point out the need for an intercessor. So think back to the frogs. Pharaoh's had enough of the frogs, right? And what's he do? He calls for Moses and Aaron in verse 8 and he says, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And what do Moses and Aaron do? They go and they plead before God on behalf of Pharaoh. And God takes away the frogs, He answers their prayers. But then what happens? What happens the moment the frogs die, the moment Pharaoh senses he doesn't need the Lord anymore? What happens? He hardened his heart and would not listen to them. And we see the same thing today, all the time. It's called false conversion. It's the person who appears to believe, appears to to cling to God, especially during times of, of great trial. But the moment they get what they want or what they seem to perceive that they want from God, the moment that trial is lifted, what happens? They're gone. They're nowhere to be found. They fall away. They're not listening. They have a hardened heart. But then we come to the flies. And what does Pharaoh ask once again? Verse 28 Plead with me. I'll let you go if you plead for me. Plead for me. Intercede for me between you and God. And what does Moses and Aaron do? Verse 30. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and he prayed to the Lord. And how did the Lord respond? He removed the flies. But then how did Pharaoh respond? Again, by hardening his heart once again. But here's here's what I want to point out the intercessory work of Moses and Aaron before God on behalf of Pharaoh. They're pleading with God to show grace upon Pharaoh, which definitely has application to our prayer life, right? And and who and what we're praying for. Like we're gonna be praying for all peoples to come to know Christ, that they will know Christ near and far. Those who the worst to those who we love the most, everybody, praying for them to come to know Christ, yes. But what I want to point out is our need for an intercessor. Because as Christians, we don't stand on our own before God. We do not stand on our own before God. Yes, we're called to walk in obedience, but it's not in our obedience that we stand before God. It's in faith in Christ alone that we stand before God. And let's be clear, it's not it's not our faith that, that secures us either. If that were the case, if it was the case that our faith would then be a work, and what happens if our faith were to fail? No, our security lies in the one our faith is placed in, not in our faith itself, but the one the faith is upon. It's like walking across a frozen pond. Anybody ever done that? You walk across a frozen pond? It's not your faith that secures you from following through, right? Right? Like you walk across the pond, I just have faith, it's going to hold me up. No. what is What secures you? It's the thickness of the ice, right? So I have more faith in a frozen pond in Minneapolis than I have in a frozen pond in West Virginia, right? There's there's reason for that. There's going to be a higher likelihood of thicker ice. You have faith that the the ice is thick enough to hold you. So when we put our faith in Christ, we're trusting him alone as our only hope in life and death. Christ being our high priest, he is being our intercessor who has atoned for our sin and who on that basis, on the basis of his blood and his righteousness, not ours, now prays and pleads for us before God the Father with total assurance. So when we find ourselves faithless, and we will be at times. He is faithful. When we're weak, and oh we will be at times. Church, he is strong. And when we can't even find the words to pray, and there will be those times. He is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. See, our our, our failings will often make us hesitate in coming to God. And instead of drawing closer, they'll push us away in despair. A feeling of like, God doesn't love me. There's no thing I can do. I'm not good enough. And it's in such times as these that we have to join with Job in saying, even now, even now in my darkest hour, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. Can my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. I love that prayer. I love that declaration. And I think it's that declaration is why I'm so drawn to the song Before the Throne of God Above. Just listen to the lyrics as I, as I kind of read through them here. Before the throne of God above, the imagery of sovereignty already in place. I a wretched sinner, a broken, faithless individual at times. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name. <laughs> My name is graven on his hands. Nail pierced hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, sovereign, <laughs> no tongue can bid me hence the to part. When Satan tempts me to despair, and all oh, it comes, church, tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and I see him there. <laughs> I see Christ who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there the risen Lamb my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one in himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. He's our intercessor. He's praying for you right now, if you are in Christ. And if you are a baptized follower of Christ, I want to invite you to come to the Lord's table this morning to celebrate this glorious reality. I want to ask you to bow your heads right now and to take a few moments to pray to reflect, to repent of your sins and prepare your heart to come to the Lord's table. And when you're ready, come get the elements and we will take them together as a church family in just a few moments. And if that's not you today, if you're not trusting in Christ as your only hope in life and in death, it can be. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the life that he lived, the death that he died, and that he right now is interceding for his children before you. Thank you for securing us in Christ and for giving us the ability to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.